It's Friday, 24th of February, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be discussing our long-term view of the global economy as US-China competition heats up. But now I'm joined by Neil Shearing, our group's chief economist, who's been in Asia this week briefing clients and is speaking to us from a quiet corner of a lounge in Changi Airport. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So what's been the most frequently asked question you've had this week? What's on clients' minds in Asia? Well, unsurprisingly, it's all about China. We, I think we get used, those of us based in Europe and indeed in North America, it's about inflation, the Fed, the ECB, recession or no recession. Here in Asia, it's all about China, the effects of China's reopening, what impact that will have on China's economy and inflation outlook, but also how that will ripple out through the region. Will it be inflationary? Will it boost growth? Or is it a storm in a teacup, as it were? China was the theme of our London roundtable a few weeks ago. One of the questions that, that kept coming up during that session was all about what's happening as the economy reopens now that the government's moved away from zero COVID. Loads of excitement in the market still about this idea of a giant reopening spending splurge in China. They call it revenge spending. Uh, official January, February retail sales data isn't out till March 15th. Before that, could you talk through our view of how big we think the Chinese consumer recovery is going to be this year? It's interesting, isn't it? China's reopening gets viewed through the lens of the re reopening in the West, in the US and in Europe. And of course, a big part of the story then was accumulated savings during the pandemic that were then unleashed. Uh, as restrictions were lifted and consumers went out and spent first on goods and then on services. Situation is slightly different in China. Lots of charts doing the rounds showing how deposits growth in China has been very strong and then some uh, links to using this as evidence that Chinese households have accumulated savings during the pandemic. Actually, uh, we put out a note over the last week showing that actually household net wealth in China has actually fallen over the past year, principally because the stock market's underperformed, but also the Chinese property market has struggled too. House values are down. So actually, a very different situation in China. There doesn't appear to be this wall of savings that's about to be unleashed and, and hit the domestic economy. That feeds into another question that, that keeps coming up in, in our conversations with clients. I'm sure you've, you've heard it a lot in, in, in Asia as well. The idea that, you know, there's policy easing in China that we've had and there's going to be an associated demand surge and perhaps that's going to dull the impact of, of the monetary tightening that advanced economy central banks have been pushing through. And that's going to force them to remain on the front foot. What does China's reopening mean for the 2023 global inflation picture? There's, there's lots of different narratives doing the rounds at the moment on what China's reopening means for global inflation. One is rooted in views on the supply side. So the idea here is that it's inflationary for the rest of the world because inevitably China will experience new waves of infection. As it reopens, that will lead to labor shortages, labor market disruption because workers are sick. Um, uh, and as that ripples through global supply chains, it becomes inflationary. So it's an argument rooted on the supply side. I don't find that particularly convincing for a couple of reasons. One is, as we've argued on our China service, most evidence suggests that actually the virus has passed through most of the, the population already. What's more, manufacturers in China appear to be sitting on large amounts of inventory, so that would act as some kind of cushion were they to experience supply shocks. And of course, the demand situation in the West is very different now compared to was the case, say, in the middle part of, late part of 2020, where you had this huge pent-up demand of the spending on goods. So I don't find it very convincing that there's going to be an inflationary surge emanating from China for the rest of the world based on developments on the supply side. 
Well, about the demand side, well, I think there will be, as we've argued on our China service, quite a rapid rebound in activity in China as the economy reopens. That will entail a rebound in household spending and consumer spending, but it's going to be mainly on domestically orientated services. These were the, the areas of the economy that were hardest hit during the lockdowns. They'll experience the sharpest bounce back as restrictions are lifted, but it's not particularly import intensive part of China's economy. So it shouldn't be sucking in lots of goods, services, other inputs for, from other economies. If we are to get any kind of inflationary spillover from China's reopening for, for other economies, I think it's most likely to come through what happens in commodity markets. So we're forecasting a, a modest rise in global energy prices and oil prices this year, partly driven by increased demand from China, but not enough to really materially change the, the global inflation picture. If, however, we were to get a very sudden rebound in China's energy demand, that was to push global oil prices to well over $100 a barrel for a sustained period of time, then I think that would start to change and alter the inflation picture in other economies. It wouldn't necessarily stop inflation in the West falling, but it would mean that the pace at which it falls would be somewhat slower. We can't talk about global inflation without mentioning some of the surprisingly strong US data releases we've had in recent weeks. We've got this view that recession is coming and that this will lay the groundwork for Fed rate cuts before the end of this year. How does that view stack up against things like the PMIs, the January payrolls and retail sales data? Well, at the moment, the data is certainly going against us. We ended last year in a situation where the US economy and the European economy, for that matter, too, was slowing the labor market was cooling and inflation was coming down quite nicely. However, the data from the early weeks and months of this year have somewhat changed that picture, notably stronger. We've had, as you mentioned, the strong payrolls number, retail sales numbers have been strong too. In the US, the non-manufacturing uh, ISM survey was strong as well. The PMI data from Europe over the past week have been strong as well. So it looks like the data are improving on the upside, and that's pushing back against the narrative of, of recession. Now, I would caution that it's still a bit of a mixed bag on the data front. It's not all unambiguously strong. If you look at durable goods orders, for example, they're still weak. If you look at the housing sectors, not just in the US, but in Europe as well, that's weak too. Trade data are pretty mixed. There's evidence that export demand in advanced economies is pretty soft. And what's more, at the moment, it's only one month or at most two months worth of data. So best not to over-interpret that. Um, if you look at our composite tracking models, it's still pointing to there being a decent chance of a recession in the US over the coming three to six months. And that's still our base case. But of course, as we've been arguing for a while, we anticipate that that recession will be, be a pretty mild one by the standards of the recent recessions and relatively short-lived. So still expect a mild recession, but it's certainly the case that the data have been going against us and the economies of the US and indeed Europe are in a better position than we had anticipated they would be only a few months ago. And we're speaking on a Friday. It's one year today since Russia invaded Ukraine. Obviously, this is a massively wide-ranging issue, but I don't want to let you go without asking about one aspect of it, arguably the most important. The White House is briefing about the enormous consequences Beijing faces if it supplies arms to Russia, where a few weeks ago, there was a concerted effort to get US-China relations back on track. There was a time not long ago when geopolitics wasn't much of a consideration when you were making decisions around investments. Now it's all the rage. 
Can you talk through how we're advising clients to navigate these extraordinarily complex global issues? You're right. They are extraordinarily complex. And of course, they take us outside of our comfort zone as macroeconomists. However, I think there is a useful framework for thinking about what's happening. And it's the one that we set out in our Spotlight series last year, which is to say that it's best to think about the world splintering into blocks, a US-led block on the one hand and a China-led block on the other and other economies coalescing around those blocks to, to varying extents. Now, in terms of how they coalesce and the factors that drive that fracturing, the best way to think about it is that geopolitics is back as a driver of policy choices and economic outcomes. And I think if you consider what's happened in the wake of the war in Ukraine, that framework, I think, stands up. In areas where there are no major geopolitical interests around supply chains, they've been pretty much left unchanged. However, if you consider areas where there are substantial geopolitical issues or considerations, or for that matter, national security considerations, defense, technology, the climate transition, uh, batteries, biotech, there have been substantial policy decisions and moves. So yes, you're right. An enormous uncertainty uh, surrounds the situation in Ukraine, how it will play out, and even bigger uncertainty about relations between the US and China more generally. But I think the framework for thinking about this is through the lens of geopolitics. And once you start to do that, a lot of what's happened over the past six to 12 months makes more sense. And that helps you to think about what might come next. That was Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing on the war in Ukraine and shaky US-China relations. It's a big theme of how we see the global economy shaping up in the coming decades, as our recent long-run Economic Outlook report makes clear. I spoke with two of the report's co-authors, Chief Global Economist Jennifer McKeown and Chief Asia Economist Mark Williams earlier. I started by asking Jenny about the challenges of forecasting economic performance decades out, even as major global risk events like the war in Ukraine are still in full force. Well, long-term forecasting is really quite different to our, our usual two-year forecast horizon. The, the fundamental building block, of course, is demographics. We take those forecasts from external institutions such as the UN. And then we apply a lot of judgments of that about how that feeds into the workforce through things like um, migration, participation rates. That might mean that we need to analyse reforms and think about how effective they'll be, for example. And then the second building block for our long-run forecast is, is productivity. And then there's a whole host of considerations around technology, how it's used, how well the population is educated and, and, and policies towards that too. So not every current issue will have a role to play in our long-term forecast. Things like elections or natural disasters, which might have a huge bearing on the two-year outlook, may have very little on the longer term. It's the major reforms or dramatic structural changes that, that we really need to consider. The Ukraine war is one of the events that will have a bearing on long-term growth, key consequences we think are to limit Russia's catch up with advanced economies and, and also to accelerate the green transition in the West. The pandemic was, was another e event that cropped up during our forecasting process that was clearly going to have a bearing on the, on the very long term. And in fact, it's, it's resulted in some changes like increased worker flexibility that could actually be positive for the long run economic outlook. So you talk about productivity and one of the central calls in this analysis is this idea that these dismally low productivity growth rates that we've seen in advanced economies since the global financial crisis are going to improve and that technology, technological development is going to be a big 
driver of this increase. Given the proliferation of technologies like cloud computing and, and mobile technologies in the years since the global financial crisis that don't seem to have improved productivity rates, what changes do we expect that are going to cause this improvement that we're forecasting? Yeah, well, that, that's a difficult call. And obviously, there's, there's a great deal of uncertainty around just what impact these technological developments will have. But past experience does suggest that it takes decades for the effects of new technology to be felt. So, so looking at those experiences and those developments in the past, I, I think we can safely say that there's a pretty good chance that the previous technological improvements start to boost productivity going forward. It's also worth noting that a lot of progress over the past decade has been in areas that, that may well improve living standards, but not necessarily growth, things like social media. The recent release of artificial intelligence chatbots has highlighted some major growth opportunities and economies like the US have a well-educated workforce that, that should be able to grasp them. So, so we're relatively positive about the potential impacts of artificial intelligence. Also, increased domestic production of high-tech, high-productivity industries like semiconductors and batteries could support productivity in the West as global fracturing continues, albeit probably at the expense of China and those aligned to it. Mark, I'd like to bring you in here if I could. The report estimates that emerging market share of global GDP is going to rise to around 60% by mid-century from 47% now. But then we say that, that DMs versus EMs, that the developed markets versus emerging markets isn't the most relevant way of looking at the global economy. Can you explain why not? Well, as someone that's made their career as an EM economist, I've sort of felt that, that the EM grouping didn't make a great deal of sense. It's such a diverse group of economies and it goes from commodity producers and then you've got tourism-based economies, you've got manufacturing-based economies. It, it's not a very useful grouping. It tells you nothing really other than, other than income level. And what we think is a, is a more useful grouping when we're thinking about the way that the global economy is going to develop over the next 10 years or 20 years is this grouping of of blocks, these geopolitical blocks that we think we're starting to see coalesce around the US and about, around the Chinese economies. And the reason why I think that's a more useful way to, to divide the global economy is that it tells us something about the way that the relationships are going to be shifting. So because now geopolitical security is at the heart of the way that governments are thinking about economic relations, we're likely then to see within these blocks tighter trade ties. So the US block, for example, we're likely to see a push to increase output of the critical minerals that go into batteries and go into semiconductors and, and so on. And on the China side, the China block, they're likely to try to pull inside the block things that aren't there currently. So high-tech manufacturing, semiconductor manufacturing, and this sort of thing. So I think that this US block versus China block breakdown just tells us something meaningful about the way that the global economy is likely to develop. And, and how does the White House's Buy American push, this, this idea of investing in America, of sourcing from America, how does this fit in with the idea of a US-led block composed of these traditional allies like Europe and Japan? The Biden by America push, I think highlights one of the tensions. There are there are lots of tensions within this fracturing global economy. But so one of them is is within individual countries. We can see within Europe, for example, that there are those that would emphasize the need to focus on security and so to reduce reliance on for some supply chains. There are others that want to just continue to focus on 
tightening those relationships and making money. Within the US, there's these long-standing kind of push and pull of the US's desire to be the leader of the West and to, to draw countries to it to help it achieve its strategic aims alongside this protectionist, go-it-alone sort of strain of, of US thinking. And these things have always you know, have been there for a very long time. This isn't really new, but we definitely see this right now where the Biden administration has been quite successful in terms of trying to pull in its allies to go along with its tech controls on China, for example. So that's kind of an example where they are building this block and trying to trying to pull people together. But at the same time, the Inflation Reduction Act has subsidies for electric vehicles and, and batteries that European and Asian companies are not eligible for. And that's created some some pushback. And we haven't seen, as you might expect, if you think that the geopolitics is the, is the only thing in town, then you might expect the Biden administration to be trying to come up with some trade deals, maybe with the Europeans or to, to join in with the CPTPP with the Pacific Rim economists. And we aren't seeing that. So there's definitely a push and pull within the US, which is very much emphasised by the Buy America push from, from, from Biden that we saw in the State of the Union. I mean, one thing that the other North American countries won't be pleased by in that was this pledge that all materials used in federal construction projects had to be made in America. Save for the Mexicans and the Canadians, they're being left out. And as someone who loves a list, one of the many riches of this report, I think, is in this table of countries that we have ranked by, by GDP now versus where they're going to be in 2050. There's a lot of striking takeaways here. I wanted to pick up on just a couple. There's India, which we expect to do very well in the coming decades, rising to become the third biggest economy by mid-century. But then China is stuck at number two. It's still stuck at number two behind the US. What accounts for India's gains and China stalling where it is now? Well, maybe I can start with China. So we've talked already about this fracturing global economy. And one of the consequences of that is that it's going to be a lot harder for China to sustain rapid productivity growth in the future. Because right now, a lot of very productive Chinese firms are very much tied into global supply chains. They're dependent on inputs from other parts of the world, parts that are, that are really US allies. So as that gets harder, as they're having to source those materials domestically, it's going to be much harder to retain the sorts of productivity growth rates that China received in, in the past. And more broadly, that's also true of the China block. So I was saying that that it makes a bit more sense to to break the world down into a China block and a US block rather than EMs versus DMs. Now, the China block in aggregate, if you, if you look at its size of the global economy, it has grown substantially over the past 20 or 30 years. But on our projections in our new report, uh, it doesn't actually grow that much more from where it is now. It's just over a quarter of the world economy by our estimate right now. And it won't be much bigger than that in 2050 on, on our numbers because a lot of the fast-growing emerging economies, we think, actually sit with the US in this. So China's relative position in the global economy is, we think, kind of plateauing. It's not going to grow a, a lot more. But India, there are a couple of reasons for optimism. One is the demographics, which everybody knows are, are pretty favourable. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know everything is great. You've got a, a growing working-age population. You still need to find productive jobs for, for all these people to, to have. But we think there's reasons to be pretty upbeat over a, a 10, 20 year horizon for India too. There's certainly challenges in the near term, some of the scars of the pandemic are still being felt. But it, there's lots of signs, I think, that 
India maybe is on the cusp of significant growth in its manufacturing sector. We've seen there's been a lot of headlines about Apple setting up shop in India and finishing iPhones there. Potentially, that's a really significant step because of the other firms that will that will grow around Apple. And we're also seeing the government making a, a concerted push to improve the infrastructure in India. So it's early days. There's a lot of uncertainty. But I think there is good reason to be relatively upbeat. And I'll jump in and say something about the the fallers there, if that's okay. I think that the fallers in, in our ranking are generally those with, with the worst demographics and without the reform drive to counter it. Mark's absolutely right that demographics alone aren't enough to drive strong growth. But if the demographics are bad enough, then you really have a mountain decline to offset that drag. And I think Italy is a prime example here. It drops out of the top 10 in our rankings down to 17th position by 2050. That's that's partly because it's aging particularly rapidly and the workforce will continue to shrink. But it also reflects persistently low productivity. That's been driven in the past by labour protection, small firm size, lack of investment, extensive red tape. And our judgment is that this will change only, only very slowly. So, so nowhere near enough of a productivity improvement to offset that drag from ageing. Japan will slip down the ranks too from third to seventh place. The reform process there has been more encouraging than that in Italy. We're hopeful about its ability to exploit technological advances, but we expect the workforce to plunge by around 20% by 2050 in Japan. And so improvements in productivity will really struggle to offset that. And obviously a lot can change between now and 2050. And the final sections of the report is is devoted to outlining what could go wrong with our calls Jenny, can you talk us through some of the biggest risks to to our long run view? Yes. Well, on the downside, I, I think sustained high inflation really it, it is the major risk, just as it is to to our two year forecast. Actually, it's, it's one of the few areas where there, there's a pretty strong overlap. We're assuming that inflation drops back to around central banks' targets, but there's a risk that it may become much more entrenched, and that could last for for much more than a couple of years, maybe even into into a decade or so. And that would add to uncertainty, limit investment and act as a, as a pretty big drag, perhaps with the risk biggest to the advanced economies. Other downside risks are more regular pandemics. We've kind of assumed that we're past that and that a, a lot has been done to vaccinate and to live with COVID. But it could be that future viruses come along that cause problems just like those that we saw with COVID. And another Downside risk is public debt crises, fiscally strained emerging markets like Brazil and South Africa spring to mind. But Italy's got to be in the frame too, and that could prompt a renewed Eurozone crisis. It's not all doom and gloom, though. There are some some upsides too. We've actually taken a fairly cautious stance regarding artificial intelligence. It could have much bigger effects on productivity, particularly in the US block, than we've assumed. Generally, we've only assumed that productivity growth will pick up by 0.5% or, or even less. So, so there could be a bigger impact. Or alternatively, state intervention in China might be rolled back with market-based structural reforms boosting productivity growth. None of this is in our central scenario, as Marx explained, but, but that turn of events in particular could have major positive effects for the world economy. That was Jenny McKeown and Mark Williams. And that's it for this episode. You can find all the analysis referenced on our website, capitaleconomics.com. For access to all our insight and data and much, much more, check out CE Advance, our new digital platform. But until next week, goodbye.